0: You're listening to the cyberwire network, powered by n two k
1: you know i i'm I tend to be a skeptic. The idea that this um, this area by this area I mean privacy and security writ large mm. um, is going to reach equi- equilibrium or stasis in any. Uh, Respect uh, anytime soon.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the Cyberwire's privacy, surveillance, law, and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co host, Ben Yellen from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben talks about the role that attorneys play in the aftermath of a cybersecurity incident. I share calls to amend the Constitution. And later in the show, my conversation with Chris Hart. He's a partner and co-chair of Foley Hoag's Privacy and Data Security Practice. We're discussing ransomware and cyber insurance. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms fed FedCyber. That's aka.ms fed FedCyber. All right, Ben, let's uh, dig into some stories here. Why don't you kick things off for us this week? Sure, so my story
2: comes from the good folks at the Lawfare blog. Um it's entitled Do the legal rules governing the confidentiality of cyber incident response undermine cybersecurity? And whenever mm. there's a question in the headline, it's uh, awfully suggestive, isn't it? <laughs> um right. and it's written by three individuals, Daniel Schwartz, Josephine Wolf and Daniel Woods. What's interesting about them is it's an interdisciplinary group of writers. So you have a law professor, public policy professor um, of cybersecurity policy, uh, and uh, a postdoctoral fellow who is researching the economics of security and privacy with a focus on cyber insurance. Hmm. They're getting at a very serious problem here. So what frequently happens when an institution, a company, a government— faces some sort of cybersecurity incident, whether it's ransomware, any type of breach, the first call they make is not to their insurer, it's not to their technical experts, but rather it's to really the le- the people you would least like to be involved in this process, and that's the attorneys. Um, <laughs> okay. we are telling ru- tales
0: out of school, uh, Yeah, we, I mean,
2: <laughs> we ruin everything. Um, we're usually part of the problem and not part of the solution. <laughs> there is a reason that people call their attorneys. Um, people are very concerned about legal liability for good reason. You don't want to have to pay the victims of the breach a ridiculous amount of damages. Legal liability is is obviously very damaging for an institution, not just monetarily but reputation wise. And according to long standing legal doctrine, communications with an attorney are privileged. That means they are non discoverable. They can't. You can't compel the discovery of communications between a uh, lawyer and their client as part of any judicial proceeding. And that also is true um, as it comes to the communications from that attorney to any other consultant that that attorney uh, is going to have a relationship with. So if the attorney hires, let's say, some sort of technical expert consultant, those communications are privileged as well. So what companies are doing, we've seen this in some high-profile breaches, specifically the target one they they mention here, is what companies do is they hire a a breach coach. And that's generally an attorney who manages the entire process. And when you hire a breach coach, that means all of the communications about the incident, about the response, are going to be privileged because the attorney-client communications are privileged and the attorney consultant uh, communications are privileged because they're part of the work product of litigation. Hmm. so this presents uh, a bunch of problems because, as you might be able to guess, lawyers aren't very good at solving technical problems uh, and they're not going to be the type of people that you want to do, like a you know, the forensic research into exactly what happened. Hmm. If you are solely focused on litigation, that's going to be detrimental to. Uh, figuring out what the problem was and preventing the incident from from happening in the future. Uh, and you've seen that play out in a bunch of different circumstances. The investigation is focused uh, unduly, in my opinion, and in the opinion of these authors, on litigation and not on ameliorating the problem. But that becomes a societal problem because if everybody who's the victim of a cybersecurity incident, you know, because of attorney-client privilege and avoiding liability, is talking to their lawyers and hiring breach coaches. We never get the best people in the room to try and solve these problems. Hmm. Uh, so these three authors here don't really have a solution. I don't. I don't blame them. Um, they're kind of introducing the problem and trying to solicit feedback from stakeholders. You know, how many people have have had this happen to them? Who have you called? Have you had one of these breach coaches? Is that effective? But I think this could be a real avenue for policy change. Uh, Generally, courts have been reluctant to privilege information between companies and technical experts. Uh, So, people are actually hired to address what happened with the cyber incident. And I think maybe that needs to change. Um, You know, maybe we should have a legal shield to hire people who can help ameliorate the damage of the attack and, uh, you know, help prevent that attack from happening in the future. So it's not a process that's so geared towards attorneys and our pre-existing doctrines around uh, legal liability.
0: You know, just this week I was uh, chatting with someone uh, who is part of incident response for one of one of the very large cybersecurity companies. And uh, we were talking about just this very thing, and I, I was— I was asking this person if it was true what I had heard which is that many times when there's a breach the organization who's breached will engage with an incident response team Right. But they will they will specifically request there be no written report. Yep. Shred the and, records. Yep. And that's and this person confirmed that uh, they said basically uh, a lot of times what happens is you you give an oral report, which mm-hmm. makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. But we're dependent on people's uh, auditory learning ability. I'm not sure that that's yeah. a foolproof solution.
0: So the research is done, but, uh, you know, the, the, the a report is done, but done in such a way, to your point, to escape discovery. Uh, this doesn't seem to me very sporting of, of, of everyone involved. The other thing I wonder is I've seen people talk about how perhaps we could handle these breaches the way that we handle incidents with um, airline accidents. You know, when right. there's a plane crash, uh, there's a team who comes in who's uh, – which the federal – is it the – what? National you know? Transportation Safety Board. Thank you very much. Yep. Yes. that Those guys. That, <laughs> that gang. of that soup of, of agencies. <laughs> yep. Right. Um, they come in and they do a report. Do we need a similar thing for – uh, breaches of a certain size uh, to to kind of take to to neutralize exactly what you're talking about here. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's one potential solution. It's really hard to scale
2: that up. I mean, you'd really have to expand the agencies that we have to to have that capability.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and you know, let's say there was a cutoff, so we only dealt with breaches for organizations that had whatever it was, you know, 100 employees. Because of the way the cybersecurity ecosystem works, that's not going to solve the problem. Because sometimes it's attacks on small businesses that are detrimental to communities, but might not rise to the level where you bring in a federal agency. Um, but you know those small businesses are still going to face the same legal liability problems. They still have you know customers whose maybe their information has been compromised. And, you know, uh, if they're concerned primarily about keeping communications confidential and not by, you know, actually solving the problem, then it's really, you know, our our macro level cybersecurity posture is, you know, going to be worsened and not improved. So we should, I think, realign the incentives uh, in whatever way that we can so that we're focused on actually solving the problem and not, you know, by... Having secretive oral presentations by forensic experts, or you know, a shell of a PowerPoint presentation in place of a comprehensive report, where a company could actually change their their cybersecurity practices. Um, so this, to me, is just like a, a you know, I, I'm very thankful for these authors because they're identifying a real policy problem here. And if we had competent legislators, and I think we do at the state level, and to some extent. Uh, at the federal level, then, you know, this is the type of thing where it it makes sense to change the law, uh, you know, for the betterment of our national cybersecurity posture.
0: So, describe to me what that mechanism would be uh, to make a change, and and what could a potential law outline here. So, I think it just has to do with privilege: the attorney client
2: privilege and the uh, work products privilege. Derived from common law. So they derive from, um, you know, centuries of uh, law dating back to our British legal ancestors. Mm -hmm. Um, That's been codified, you know, in case after case. So it's something that's very well settled. What a legislature could do is to expand the privilege to include, um, you know, maybe forensic cybersecurity experts. That's, you know, something that might be very difficult to do at the federal level for a number of reasons. Um, You know, I think you could make a case that it's within the enumerated powers of Congress to to do this, since this is an interstate commerce issue. I think it's more likely you'd see it at the state level, where, you know, you get a couple of states that say, we have these pre-existing common law privileges for attorneys uh, and for the attorneys' consultants, and there are a number of other privileges in our legal system, Uh, The spousal privilege is is one that I'm sure people know about from their favorite police procedural shows. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, I I think we might need to have, uh, you know, to protect the integrity of this information, have a new privilege um, where courts are forced to recognize that, you know, forensic experts or any sort of uh, cybersecurity technical expertise, at least for the post-cyber, you know, incident investigation, has some sort of legal legal privilege and that information is not discoverable. Or the discovery rules um, as it pertains to that information are lessened. You know, maybe certain aspects of it are discoverable, um, but certain aspects are not. Um, you know, the, no solution uh, is perfect, and certainly that solution isn't perfect, largely because that might end up hurting the people who are, um, you know, facing the consequences of the breach, it's going to be harder right. to sue a company if they have all these privileges. Yeah. So you kind of have to weigh those conflicting values. I think, you know, in in my opinion, my values would come on let's introduce this privilege at least in a limited capacity and just allow companies to learn from their mistakes. Um, you know, try to nobody nobody wants to be the victim of a ransomware attack or a cyber incident. So give them mm-hmm. the chance Uh, with confidentiality and with confidence that it's not going to end up in in litigation to actually figure out what happened and what preventative measures need to be taken. Um, So I think when you balance those interests, the answer to me seems relatively clear.
0: Hmm. All right. Well, we will have a link to that article. Again, that is over on the Lawfare blog. Uh, Good stuff. Uh, my story this week uh, actually comes from the Boston Globe, and uh, they have an interesting project that they spun up here. It's called Editing the Constitution. uh small thing to do, right, Ben? Yeah. It's easy.
2: Yeah. It just takes an afternoon, right?
0: Yeah. Well, just get a few folks together in a room. We'll just hammer something out in a few hours. I mean, that's kind of how it happened in the first place, if you take out right. the few hours part, but yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, and this project, uh, starts with the notion that, uh, the constitution is due for some updates, that there are some things that are anachronistic. There are some things that uh, don't make sense. There are some things in, in some of the amendments in particular that aren't particularly well written. Uh, and we could use some clarification, sure. um, so the one that caught my eye is uh, talking about upgrading our right to privacy, and this uh, topic was uh, taken on by Evan Greer, uh, and it discusses the Fourth Amendment and how the right of the—the the, the, uh, Fourth Amendment guarantees the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects, uh, but that it is due for an update uh, in these modern times that the the Fourth Amendment has not kept up uh, or is— is not equipped to deal with the things that we are uh, dealing with today, things like uh, biometric surveillance, facial recognition, uh, the massive collection of data, location tracking, all those things that you and I talk about here pretty much every week. Yeah. So I wanted to come at this just from, let's start off at the the top level here. Um, Is this notion of editing the Constitution Uh, in your uh, opinion, first of all, at all useful? It's useful as an intellectual
2: exercise. Um, To me, it's not particularly useful if we actually want to make something happen. Uh, Hmm. And I'll try to explain why. So there's only been 27 amendments to the Constitution since it was ratified in the 1780s. Ten of those amendments were codified two years after the Constitution was enacted as, as part of the Bill of Rights. So since then, we've only had 17 constitutional amendments. Amending the Constitution is really, really difficult. You need uh, the votes of two-thirds of each House of Congress. um, And good luck getting two-thirds of each House of Congress to agree on anything these days. Mm. Uh, And then you need the support of three-fifths of the state legislators, uh, state legislatures, rather. Uh, And that can be a very cumbersome process. Um, You know, we've seen that with something like the Equal Rights Amendment where— Back in the 1970s, Congress agreed by two-thirds majorities to send to the states uh, a ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment guaranteeing um, the equal rights of individuals under the law uh, regardless of gender or sex. And Mm -hmm. it couldn't get the requisite 38 states to sign on in time uh, to create that new constitutional amendment. So the Mm -hmm. process is extremely cumbersome. Uh, The last time we had a constitutional amendment that was ratified – uh, it was 1992, sort of a bizarre accident of history, where uh, <laughs> the founding fathers uh, proposed a provision to prevent lawmakers from increasing their own pay during the current session of Congress. And some doctoral student or research student in Texas uh, discovered the records of this constitutional amendment. tried to try to kind of revive it and get states to to ratify it. And since there was no deadline put in place by our founding fathers for ratification, uh, it ended up being added to our Constitution. Um, Hmm. But that's now been about 30 years uh, since we've had a change to our federal Constitution. So it's really difficult to do so. I think on substance here, uh, this person is absolutely right. I mean, many legal scholars, including a couple Supreme Court justices, have talked about how the Fourth Amendment is, and, and certainly aspects of Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, are outdated in the age of modern technology. And there are really um, two things, two sort of doctrines that cause that problem most acutely. The first is what's called the plain view doctrine, where anything that law enforcement finds in plain view uh, does not require a warrant. Um, That made sense when we were literally talking about what a police officer could see right in front of them. But when Mm -hmm. we get to things like aerial surveillance uh, or, you know, um, blue light cameras in in neighborhoods, or you know, biometrics, things like that. Uh, <laughs> artificial intelligence. Right. You know what's in plain view has obviously significantly changed over the past, you know, forty years or so. Mm-hmm. And then there's the third party doctrine, which says that any information you voluntarily give to a third party um, that is not protected under the Fourth Amendment. And that's a real problem in the age of, you know, cloud communications, where even our private papers um, in the parlance of the Fourth Amendment are technically held by a third party on some server somewhere. Uh, And the way that the third party doctrine is set up, at least in most circumstances, is the government doesn't need a warrant to collect that information. So I think, you know, the easiest solution, granting that it's almost impossible to pass a constitutional amendment— is to encourage judges to adopt a a more modern understanding of the Fourth Amendment. And the theory that I and I think many legal scholars uh, ascribe to, and this is scholars on all sides of the political spectrum, is something called the equilibrium adjustment theory, which Hmm. is that as forms of technology change, we have to make sure that the, the law or the jurisprudence changes to restore the... Uh, level of privacy that existed prior to that technology being introduced. Uh, So, you know, for something like, uh, let's talk about aerial surveillance. And we've talked about Mm -hmm, the the mm -hmm. Baltimore spy plane.
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
2: So, yeah, exactly. In the past, that would have required hundreds of thousands of law enforcement agents to collect that information. It would have taken manpower, Money, um, and you still wouldn't be able to discover people's houses, persons, papers, and effects largely, um, Mm -hmm. you know, without going through a really cumbersome process. That's changed because of the technology. Now you can do that with aerial surveillance that's taking, you know, real time photographs, images from 10,000 feet. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the law or the jurisprudence should change. To give people the same privacy protection they had prior to that new technology being introduced, um, this is something my man crush, Orrin Kerr, has uh, <laughs> written about extensively. It's one of his favorite theories. Um, it's a theory I subscribe to as well. I think it's the easiest way to accomplish what the author is trying to do here, without you know going through the rather hopeless process of amending the Constitution. Hmm. So sorry, I was talking by, for a long time there. I no, no,
0: no, no. It's good stuff. I mean, but so by what process do does that get put in place? How, how do you how do you get folks on board? What's the what are the carrots and sticks that you use to to get uh, this in place? So first, you get to the legal academics,
2: man. I mean, they have more power <laughs> than than you'd think. Okay, uh, a lot of the theories that courts come up with start in the ivory towers of universities. Hmm. So something like this, I mean, when you get people like Oren Kerr or other similarly situated professors writing legal briefs, particularly in lower courts, arguing for this viewpoint, slowly over time, this viewpoint might get adopted in cases. And those cases, because of our common law system, become part of our legal canon. I mean, it becomes binding precedent. And then Hmm. eventually it works its way up to the Supreme Court so that you get enough Supreme Court justices to subscribe to that theory. Um, So, you know, we've seen that happen in a number of circumstances. I know you and I have talked about uh, the Mosaic theory, this theory that even if a discrete piece of communication isn't protected by the Fourth Amendment, when you combine it with lots of other discrete forms of uh, surveillance or, or communications, it can create a very personal picture of somebody's life. And in the aggregate, that should be protected by the Fourth Amendment. That theory came from some academic institution, some law professor, um, you know, who's not in the courtroom, who sits around all day in their office and strokes their chin and tries to think of these theories. (laughs) Uh, But eventually it makes its way to somebody like Justice uh, Sonia Sotomayor, who has brought up the mosaic theory uh, in a variety of Supreme Court cases. Um, Mm. And that theory certainly has uh, influenced courts all across the country. So you know you it's it's a process that that is frustrating because it happens slowly. um but this is why we have people doing legal research, legal scholarship, um you know writing uh law journal articles to try and get judges eventually to think differently about these issues. Um so just you know be nice to your legal academics uh, <laughs> they they could be the, your your future ticket to enhanced digital privacy.
0: <laughs> Well, so again, talking about fundamentals here. I mean, is it two-part question, uh, Counselor? Uh, do we is it possible that the method by which we amend the Constitution is mis- mismatched to the velocity at which things run these days compared yes. to how they compared to how they did when all this stuff was, you know, first come up with? So that's question part one would you like that one's easy yes it's it's extremely cumbersome (laughs) okay uh part two um is it possible to amend the constitution to amend the way we amend the constitution very meta question the answer (laughs) the answer
2: is yes but you so there's basically only one thing that at least the founding fathers said you cannot amend to the constitution And that's the equal suffrage of states in the Senate. Um, There's some argument over that. I mean, if you're saying somebody can't change a particular thing, then you could change that provision, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's still in the Constitution. Uh, Yeah, you could change the rules, but to change the rules, you have to to use the rules. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you need to get those two-thirds majorities in Congress and those three-fifths of the state legislatures. And if you have the support of those people— then you might as well try and just get the substantive amendment passed and not mm, change the I process, see. if, if right. that makes sense. Sure, there's no sure. workaround. I mean, you know, with things like ending the filibuster in the Senate, there's like a, what's called the nuclear option where you could theoretically do that with 50 votes. Um, that's not possible with the Constitution. I mean, the Constitution spells out very clearly the process for
0: amending it. Um, so,
2: they're, you know, you're going to have to follow that process.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, we will have a link to uh, this uh, story in the Boston Globe and uh, sort of the, the, the greater project that they proposed here of uh, editing the Constitution. It's an interesting read. There's some, some, uh, some things to ponder in there, I think. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. uh, Those are our stories this week. We would love to hear from you. If you have something you'd like us to cover here on Caveat, you can send us an email. It's caveat at cyberwire.com. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. And I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Chris Hart. He is a partner and co-chair of Foley Hoag's Privacy and Data Security Practice, and our conversation centered on the topics of ransomware and cyber insurance, certainly hot topics these days. Here's my conversation with Chris Hart.
1: Everything is a mess. That's where things are at a high level from where I stand, and they're a mess for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first is that uh, since COVID, there has been uh, an enormous uptick in ransomware attacks across institutions uh, around the world, and in particular in the United States, and it's it's actually hit healthcare facilities the hardest. Of course, obviously, financial institutions and every other institution is also affected. But but it's there's been an enormous uptick, and it's very very difficult for entities to know how to deal with ransomware attacks. And unlike what I would call your garden variety say, data breach, um, which can be anything from somebody loses a laptop to there's an insider who steals a cache of information to there's a denial of service attack or, or that sort of thing. What happens with ransomware is that you, your data becomes inaccessible. And for institutions that have particularly sensitive information, I focus on healthcare facilities because it's, it's a perfect example where if you can't access patient data, people could die. And so it's, it's a, it's a real problem that uh, institutions have to deal with on an alarmingly increasing level. Um, I would say probably as close to exponential as you can get in a, in a situation like this. The other side of it that's a mess is the insurance market. And the thing to say about insurance is that insurers are very good, generally speaking, about figuring out how to price the risk. And so, Um, You have, as a general matter, so you have in insurance policies, well-established clauses, terms, uh, and exceptions to those terms based on uh, what's often a a market-wide understanding of how to price various risks. Generally speaking, cyber risks are very difficult to price. Cyber insurance has been around for a long time, but Mm -hmm. so too has the problem of pricing the risk. And what's happened with ransomware is that because there's been an increasing spate of attacks, it's hit a bunch of different institutions in ways that can be difficult to respond to. The technology evolves and the way in which threat actors are seeking payment or the fact that they're seeking payment, in addition to the other kinds of risks that come from attacks, makes it more difficult to price the risk. And so that has uh, sent, as far as I can tell, the insurance markets in in, in something of a, a state of chaos because premiums have spiked to the extent that insurers are willing to cover ransomware attacks uh, in the first place. So, you know, you add to that now what I would say: government, the federal government in particular, U.S. federal government in particular, waking up to the fact that making ransomware payments can be a real problem, and now the government response is creating. Right now, some concerns about um, liability risk that can come from ransomware attacks, which of course insurers pay attention to, but that also can make the the kind of response that uh, an institution is facing either more limited or a little more difficult to discern.
0: Well, let's dig into to some of these elements one by one here. I mean, I you know I have wondered sometimes as I've watched uh, insurance companies respond to the evolution of the ransomware threat. Could insurance for something like ransomware or cyber insurance in general, could it end up something similar to how flood insurance is, where the private companies don't want to touch it? The federal government is the only organization willing to be a backstop here. So you kind of end up with insurance that's not particularly great. It's pretty expensive. But if you need it, that's where you can get it. Is there any sense that that may be a direction we're headed in?
1: It's possible. Um, and, I, and I mean, I guess I would separate out a few different elements to that. When a ransomware attack happens, there are a few things. One is, can the institution actually continue its business? There's the business continuity problem. There's the compliance problem. You know, how much does it cost to actually go through the process of sending the requisite notifications? And obviously, the larger the institution, uh, the larger that cost. What about litigation costs that might come from consumers or counterparties or even government entities, those are right off the bat three significant costs that an insurance policy might be able to cover. In ransomware, you've got a fourth, and that's the payment to the threat actor, um, which is usually Some exorbitant amount in a cryptocurrency. And of course, there's also that element, which is the increasing regulation around, around the use of cryptocurrency. What, what you're saying is an interesting idea. What I would say is I I don't know that, I don't know that moving in that direction would, that that I could see markets moving in that direction in total. What I could Mm. see is the potential that when it comes to the payment itself, perhaps that's not covered because there are sanctions risks, and there are um, all sorts of national security concerns that come that come with ransomware payments, and that perhaps that part is left to the government, as as you put it, at backstop. I think it's an interesting idea, but there are still these other garden variety concerns um, that I just mentioned: compliance, notification, litigation. That uh, are in that sense, a ransomware attack is it might be bigger, it might be more difficult, but it's not really very different in kind from other kinds of data breaches. So that might still be something that insurance markets could more easily price and exclude the payment itself.
0: To what degree are the demands from the insurance companies affecting how organizations are tuning up their own security posture here? Is it you know, if you if you own a building and you have uh, you know sprinklers and fire uh, escapes, you're going to get a, a better rate on your your fire insurance. Is this a similar situation here?
1: Yes, as I've seen, and I would say that that is one of the the more salutary effects of what's been going on right now. Insurance companies have upped their game in terms of what they are requiring from organizations that want to get coverage under. Uh, any kind of cyber policy and they want to know that you've done your uh, your requisite hygiene so do you have an up-to-date policy have you looked at your the jurisdictions in which you do business do you have somebody who is a point person and is capable of uh, of dealing with uh, both privacy as well as security issues uh in the company and they'll, they'll want to go over those, uh, those elements with you to make sure that they are uh, appropriate. The other thing that's happening is that organizations that have experienced some kind of attack and don't have insurance uh, then are realizing, well, gosh, this, this could happen again. Uh, so we really need insurance, and they're going to insurers. And what surprised me is the insurers aren't saying no. They are pricing it quite high, and they are requiring quite a bit of, of um, what I'll call hygiene diligence, again, very salutary effect in the market overall to control for the moral hazard element. But it is something that organizations are then facing and realizing that they really have to get their house in order.
0: Wow, yeah, that's interesting. Do you suppose that we have any hope of reaching equilibrium here anytime soon, or should we expect to be in a state of flux for the foreseeable future?
1: Well, um, getting out my crystal ball, uh, (laughs) I would say that the... (laughs) You know, I, I'm I tend to be a skeptic. The idea that this um, this area, by this area, I mean privacy and security writ large, mm. um, is going to reach equi- equilibrium or stasis in any uh, respect uh, anytime soon, you know, for for all sorts of reasons with insurance and, and ransomware. Uh, no, not for the foreseeable future. For a couple of reasons, one, I, I do think that there is a lot of government movement right now. So the Office of Foreign Asset Control under the Treasury Department, or OFAC. Just recently issued its second uh, annual, I guess, advisory uh, saying, "Look, if you pay ransomware payments to a threat actor and they're on our sanctions list, there's a strict liability attached to it, and you could be subject to uh, an OFAC violation." And Congress is now looking at different ways to uh, control entity behavior around a ransomware attack. So, for example, you know, both OFAC as well as these proposed bills. Uh, are requiring certain kind of cooperation with law enforcement in order to demonstrate diligence and reduce the risk of sanction. But that has a lot to work through. And then there's, I would say, the international element as well. I mean, these are international actors, and they're they're often supported by nation states, and that has uh, a number of geopolitical concerns attached to it. You know, yet on top of that, the fact that the technology is constantly changing, and the risk continues to be difficult to price as it has been for two decades. I think it's going to take some time. So, you know, I, I could see it um, starting to calm down maybe uh, over the next uh, couple of years if there's clarity from the government on how uh, ransomware attacks should be treated. That's still in flux. But my my concern is saying that is in saying that is that the threat landscape will change. You know, that that is a very difficult thing to predict Mm -hmm. is is what we're going to see within the threat landscape and how that could affect uh, government response and and then the market. So I I tend to think that um, for better or worse, we're going to be in a state of flux for some time.
0: All right, Ben, what do you think? It's really a tough
2: landscape out there for cyber insurance. I mean, we're in this mm-hmm. really unique period where we're in a pandemic. We've seen, as he said, an, an increase in ransomware attacks. And it's just very difficult to evaluate risk at this point. Uh, yeah. And that's different. That's difficult both for the insurance adjusters, but also for the entire industry, um, because there's just so much uncertainty around what cyber insurance is going to cover how much it can cover, um, you know, without the entire industry going bankrupt, uh, but you know that's that's of no great comfort to companies who are, or you know, other organizations, local governments, whatever, who are suffering these attacks. So um, yeah, it's it's a it's a really tough situation.
0: Yeah, I saw just this week that I think it was Lloyd's of London announced that uh, they were no longer going to be covering. Uh, breaches that were the result of nation-state attacks. And uh, I think it was Kim Zetter, journalist and author Kim Zetter, who pointed out that— Imaginary
2: uh, friend of the show, yeah. I mean, <laughs> in that, I, I read every article she writes. <laughs>
0: right. That uh, I think she pointed out that it was interesting because a lot of companies used to uh, s- summon the name of the nation-state actors to sort of shield themselves, to say— right. This, is, was, this was a, an attack by a nation state actor that was sophisticated and, you know, there's nothing we could have done against an attacker of this sophistication. And right. So now if the insurance companies are saying, not so fast. Right. <laughs> it'd be interesting if they, if they no longer go after that uh, as a way to shield themselves. Yeah, that's very interesting. Kind of a catch-22 there. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, our thanks to Chris Hart for joining us. Uh, we do appreciate him taking the time. To learn why enterprises choose SixthSense, Sense, visit sense.com That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Caveat Podcast is produced in Maryland at the Startup Studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpe. I'm Dave Bittner, and I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.